Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Help TVO create a better world through the power of learning. Visit TVO.org and make a tax-deductible donation today. We all remember back in May of 2023, Doug Ford, Premier Doug Ford, pledging to introduce the so-called Hazel McCallion Act, which would have allowed Mississauga to leave Peel Region, uh, of which it has been a significant constituent part for going on 50 years. But then several months later, in December of 2023, Doug Ford backtracked on the Peel dissolution plan, and Peel stays as is for the moment. Okay, let's go in inverse order this time. Martin, he's made two different decisions here. Which was the right decision? Hmm. Oh, that's a trick question. I, I think the pattern is that they were, they were both flip-flops. I think they were both poorly thought through. So I'm not sure what the absolutely right decision is. I think the politics is what was driving the decisions on this one as, as, as with the Greenbelt. If you asked Hazel McCallion, it was an obvious decision. There was an imbalance for taxpayers, et cetera. If you asked Bonnie Crombie, the former, the then mayor, now liberal leader, again, Patrick Brown, mayor of Mississauga. Mayor Brampton. Uh, uh, thank you, not Steve <laughs> Clark. Mayor, <laughs> Ma- Patrick Brown, mayor of Brampton. I'm never gonna let this down. <laughs> and, and so, uh, and if you ask the mayor of Caledon, she supported this. Mm-hmm back at the beginning and then changed her mind. She's now opposed to it. So, so sometimes there isn't an obvious decision and, and to govern is to choose. I don't pretend to be an expert, so I'm not gonna choose, but I'm gonna analyze what or, or argue what I think was not the right choice, which was to do this for political reasons and to take the path of least resistance. I guess Doug Ford finally had to acquiesce to Hazel McCallion, deathbed promise to her, went ahead and did it, thought that Bonnie Crombie, or perhaps hoped that Bonnie Crombie would remain as mayor of Mississauga once he gave her this gift. And then when she ran to be liberal leader and potentially will harvest all those Mississauga seats, now there's no upside for Doug Ford anymore. There's losing those seats anyway, and there's the downside of having Brampton mad as heck at him. Mm. And so I think that is the where I land on this, is it's, you have three former and present provincial party leaders, right? Patrick Brown, former conservative leader, Doug Ford, the current, don't like each other much. Doug Ford and Bonnie Crombie don't like each other much. All that triangulation, all that bad blood, and a divorce. Doug Ford does seem to have an amazing superpower, which Mm -hmm. is to say he can go out there and step in three feet of manure (laughs) and get it all over him and then come out before the cameras and really emote, apologize, and his polling numbers go right back up. Mm-hmm. As they used to say on television in the 50s and 60s, explain, Lucy. <laughs> <laughs> I won't hit you over the head with a rolling pin. After <laughs> I do you. it. Um, it. It is remarkable, and I think it is actually his superpower, and it is rare because he seems to be able to act as almost a spectator on his government sometimes. It's like, hey, Premier, what do you think about your government wasting? Oh, that sounds awful. I can't believe I'm going to get to the bottom of it. It's like, no, man, you're in charge. Like, how, how can you possibly? But he has... I think being able to consistently kind of paint himself as an outsider, I'm not part of this machine. I think the longer he goes in government, I think the less that ability um, remains. But yeah, he does have a Teflon-like ability to stand back and say, you know what? That was the wrong thing to do. I'm super sorry. Like, aw shucks, folks. Let's move along. Mm-hmm. And he's kept that. Uh, there are, I've actually never seen 
a politician be able to do it as effectively as he has? Or as many times. And as many times. Mm-hmm. But I also do think that in politics, and particularly all of us as kind of almost like sports fanatics watching the, the thrust and, and parry of this, um, we really obsess over flip-flopping or changing your mind. I think most people in the country, most voters are accept that that's part of life. And if you have facts in front of you that negate, like that maintain that, then you can. So I think people care less about flip-flops than all of us do, yep. which is also why he's able to do it. How infuriated are new Democrats at being, <laughs> once again, watching the Premier do this over and over and over, seemingly successfully? Look, there's a couple of parts to this. You expect the premier to do this at some point. You're just like, okay, this is, you know, the usual the usual thing. What I've actually been really quite encouraged by has been watching the New Democrats, in particular, Marit Stiles, being out there talking about the closures at in Minden and the in the emergency room. Going, she just did a Northern Ontario tour, going into the mines talking to people on the ground, what's happening. She is also promoting really interesting women-led businesses. There's a, a coverall manufacturer in Northern Ontario that makes it specifically for women. And, you know, Again, women in trade, something Minister McNaughton was quite good at talking about, but the rest of this government, not so much. So it gives you, if you're, if you're an opposition leader and the leader of the opposition, you're going to go out and say, he is, here is what they are doing. They are not going to fulfill any of these promises and these aw shucks. We're not getting the housing built. We're not getting the emergency departments up and operational. You're still waiting months and months and months, no matter how much gobsmacking amounts of money are in the Ministry of Health, you're still not getting your hip replaced nearly as fast as you should be. Those are the things that if you're an opposition leader two years out from from, uh, from the next election, you're building up that database. You're finding those candidates. The key is to address the emissions associated with the, with the use of natural gas. And as we see natural gas increasingly complementing uh, renewables on the system and potentially replacing the use of um, gas and oil and transportation and in home heating, you have the ability to move to a lower carbon footprint. We really need to focus on what is the most cost-effective way to reduce emissions while giving Ontarians what they've always been used to, a reliable and resilient energy grid. Can you lower emissions? Can you lower emissions and and use less natural gas? So, yes. Um, you, I think some of the technologies we've talked about today, there's been studies in Ontario that look at the ability for energy efficiency, for example, to meet 20% of Ontario's energy needs. Like the cheapest power plant is the one you don't have to build. And we're living in the digital era where you can really help avoid the electricity system gets built out for the hottest day in Ontario or the coldest day in Quebec. Mm -hmm. How do you just make those days less intense? When you're using heat pumps in households, those are more efficient than air conditioners. You know, like other energy efficiency measures, battery technology has come down 80% in the last 10 years and projected to continue to decline over the course of the next 10 years. So these, those kinds of technologies are going to help balance out some of the renewables on the grid even more than they have done so in the past. Um, in addition to uh, distributed energy resources, the electric cars that people have in their driveway being able to kind of power homes overnight. Again, another study looked at the ability for Ontario to meet 100% of its incremental needs based on distributed energy resources like that, like 
solar rooftops. The challenge is human. So how do we create the innovation, the market structures, the design to allow for a culture of innovation and build in kind of that first instinct to try to look at some of these new non-emitting solutions? You heard in my intro, I'm not suggesting that natural gas won't have a transitional role in a very short-term period, but the challenge is these plants last for a very long time. Like a transitional period isn't 40 years we're gonna be sitting in the status quo. What we need it? to be planning for it today. So a transitional period would be how long? Well, I think you know people are probably aware that the federal government is talking about a 2035 clean electricity regulations. I think they are creating within the structure of what they first published an ability for natural gas to be used as a peaker. So that's that thing we're talking about like on those very off days that you might still need it, you might still need to do that in 2035. But I mean, the ISO, the system operator in Ontario said they could see a natural gas moratorium being feasible as of 2027. Like we're not talking about long timelines here. We need to be starting to move to the future and figuring out that transition plan today. Just on the issue of emissions though, is it possible to continue to use natural gas the way we have been and reduce the emissions? Maybe we burn cleaner, I don't know, you tell me. So the goal is not just to reduce emissions. Yes, we can reduce emissions. Uh, that's possible. We could have more efficient plants. We could have more efficient homes. We can blend in some renewable natural gas, perhaps maybe some hydrogen. But the goal is in the electricity sector is to get to net zero emissions by 2035. This is what Canada's goal is, as articulated by the prime minister. This is what the goal is across Europe and in many, many countries. In a nutshell, I'd say a chronic uh, or years of chronic underfunding. Uh, and this isn't new. This is uh, many governments. I think the last major investment in post-secondary education came after the Ray Review, uh, which was uh, in the McGuinty era, 2004-2005. Uh, then that was cut back. Uh, tuitions have been cut back. 2019, 10%, frozen ever since. Uh, it goes on and on. Operating grants, if you look at funding formulas, uh, the amount that they recognize that programs need to be funding, frozen for at least 15 years. Hmm. Uh, so I think it's just a case of years and years, chronic underfunding, lack of recognition of what the system needs, and we are where we are. Jeff, what would you add to that list? Yeah, just Steve, that we've gone through a period of hyperinflation now, and like everyone else, the, the forces on our delivery of education. It costs more to educate Ontarians and educate students. And of course, there hasn't been any response in the, in the amount of support that we've received from government. Well, okay, let me try this then, Alex. I remember covering Queen's Park in the early 1980s and people were protesting at Queen's Park because even under the sainted Bill Davis government, post-secondary education funding per student was 10th out of 10 provinces then. It's 10th out of 10 provinces today. Has all that much really changed? Uh, <clears throat> underfunding higher education in Ontario is a thoroughly pan-partisan affair. Um, in the 40 years since, since you covered that in, with Bill Davis, I think there were only two years during the McGuinty period when uh, Ontario climbed up into ninth place. Um, for Ontario to reach ninth place now would take $4 billion a year. And to reach the actual, the national average, or the average of the other nine provinces, would take about $7 billion a year. Hmm. That's how badly it's underfunded in this province compared to the rest of Canada. And the obvious conclusion I'm drawing from that is we're not about to see $4 billion injected into the system this year. Not that I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> so we are where we are. Yeah. We have about 10 in Toronto right now, uh, and about five of them are actually in the, in the area near St. Michael's Hospital where I work, uh, and uh, they're incredibly important for saving lives. How come? 
because uh, we've talked a lot about the toxic drug supply. And I said, nobody I know uh, that we see in our emergency departments intentionally overdose. And they want to use, when they're using drugs, they want to use them safely. And so a safe consumption site allows them to come in and do it in a supervised manner. And should they be taking a drug that actually has one of the toxic uh, additions to it, mm -hmm. then they can be uh, cared for by people who are trained. And they are also there supported by peer outreach workers and a community where they can uh, ensure that the right resources are in place to help people who are managing addictions. Jennifer, do we have any sites in Belleville? We don't. We have zero sites in Belleville. Do you need some? Absolutely, we do. <laughs> um, I mean, that's definitely something that we would push for. Um, what we've been told in the past is that there's there's quite a bit of red tape to get through to um, be able to, ha to have a site. Um, but I think a lot of our, our immediate issue would be solved um, with that type of support in place. I'm sure there are people watching us or listening to us right now who think that if you have safe injection sites that are administered the way that Carolyn just described them, you are still enabling dangerous and harmful behavior. What would you say to those folks? People use for all types of different reasons um, and they're going to use regardless of what people think of that. And so if, at least if they're using in a place where it's safe and um, they have support to help them, it's better than using on the street where people are, they're dying. Um, right now, you know, we have staff constantly out checking on on our guests uh, just to make sure everybody's okay. Um, but that's an added stressor on the staff to be constantly vigilant, um, making sure our citizens are okay. The Agenda with Steve Pakin is made possible through generous philanthropic contributions from viewers like you. Thank you for supporting TVO's journalism.